everybody. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, today, we are very lucky to be joined by photographer, filmmaker, artist, Aubrey Powell. Uh, now, if you don't know who Aubrey is, that's okay, but I guarantee you know his work. Aubrey was half of the artistic group known as Hypnosis. This group, which also included artist Storm Thorgerson, was responsible for some of the most recognizable and legendary album art from the late 60s to the early 80s, including Led Zeppelin's House of the Holy, Peter Gabriel's first few solo records, and of course, the most popular record cover of all time, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Since Hypnosis dissolved in 1983, he has busied himself with movies, documentaries, as well as artistic directing tours for Sir Paul McCartney and numerous other projects. He joins us from his home in England. Welcome, Aubrey. Hello. So, uh, yeah, I'm joined uh, by my co-host, Kyle. He's here with me. Hello, Aubrey. How's it going? Hi, Kyle. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. First of all, I want to thank you for joining us today, uh, this afternoon, for you. Okay. <laughs> and um, uh, so how are you doing with this uh, whole quarantine business? How are you holding up? Well, I live on a, I mean, I live in London, but I also have a farm um, in Oxfordshire. Uh, so I'm kind of locked down and it's comfortable. <laughs> so it makes no difference to me. So to be honest with you, um, you know, there's fields and bicycle rides and walks. And also I'm in the middle of writing a book. So I have plenty to do and other Pink Floyd projects too. And so, you know, being locked down the country is about as beautiful as it gets with me. So it doesn't really affect me too much. The only thing I'd, I find difficult is the lack of social connection whereby, um, you know, I can't have friends around. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's it, really. But apart from that, uh, to be honest with you, it's been kind of nice. It's been a wonderful spring here. It's been very sunny and warm. And um, and it looks beautiful, so I I, can't, I mustn't complain. If it went on for another year, I probably would be pretty uh, uptight, I think. But at the moment, no, it's good. That sounds nice, actually. Mm, yeah, it's cool. For those out there, for our listeners that don't know who you are and what you were involved with, can you tell us a little bit about how hypnosis came to be? Since sure, that's kind of what you're most well known for, especially in the the music world. I started a company called Hypnosis uh, way back in 1967 uh, with my partner, Storm Thorgerson, and we began by doing the second Pink Floyd album cover. It was called Saucer Full of Secrets. We were both students and both extremely amateur, I would say, and didn't really know what we were doing, but we were enthusiastic and had had some experience in learning about darkroom uh, work and also how to use a camera. So more by luck than judgment, uh, we came up with quite a good idea and it kind of worked out. And that was the start of it all. Mm. And from then on, throughout the 70s, we worked with you know, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, the Floyd again many times. Uh, Peter Gable, Genesis, and on and on it went. And we became an album cover studio, I suppose. Uh, and that's what we were, have been renowned for um, since then and and up to now. That's awesome. So as a kid, when I was uh, 10, 11 years old, I had the, when I had my first uh, 
record buying experience, like with my own money when my mom wasn't buying uh, records for me. First thing I went into the store to buy was uh, actually Peter Gabriel's uh, Melt, uh, so three. Mm -hmm. And um, that started a uh, kind of a lifelong love affair with your company's uh, work specifically. I've been kind of devoted to collecting as much of that as I can, but it was that first experience of tying artwork to the music and associating those two things together that kind of really kind of spurned a, a music passion for the rest of my life. So was the goal, like when you were, when you were designing uh, records, was, was the or record covers, was the goal to make it relate to the music or the lyrics or to make it just memorable or both of those two things combined? To be absolutely frank, um, there were many occasions when we designed uh, pictures that were absolutely nothing to do with the name of the band, the lyrics, uh, the concept, or anything else around uh, the music. Um, I can honestly say that we thought up interesting ideas and then often tried to sell them to bands, um, sometimes with success and sometimes not. I remember... Um, showing Led Zeppelin an idea and Robert Plant turned over the piece of cardboard it was drawn on and on the back of it, it had crossed out Wishbone Ash, Judas Priest, The Who, uh, you know, and he said to me, do you mean to say you've shown these to other people? And I said, yeah, why not? It's a good idea. And he said, well, you're a couple of chances, aren't you? You know, and I said, well, you know, a good idea is a good idea. You know, that's, that's how we were. That's how we worked. So many times um, the ideas had absolutely nothing to do with the band. But on the other hand, there were specific examples like Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here, which was directly related to the lyrics and to the concept of the album. Um, you know, so it, it varied, but often the picture was more important to us than anything else. I mean, the other thing I can say, and this is important, is the music inside a, a record cover is not our responsibility. That was the responsibility of the band. Mm -hmm. Our responsibility was to make an interesting photograph to go with that uh, music and the band. And so whether it bore any relevance or not was neither here nor there. What was important in an emporium with 10,000 other albums that it stuck out and people looked at it and said, that's interesting, what's all that about? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that like arguably one of your most famous works is the cover to dark side of the moon. It's, it's appeared on millions of t-shirts. I mean, there are people that have never heard the album that would recognize the cover to it. Um, yes. That being the case, uh, is that, well, I guess, first of all, after what we've just talked about, was that specifically designed for dark side of the moon or was it one that you had pitched before and having created something like that, that's so complementary to the piece of music, wherein, you know, the minute you see that, you immediately think of Dark Side of the Moon and vice versa. When you listen to Dark Side of the Moon, you immediately think of the cover. How how did that drive you forward? How did that, I, I guess, how do you think about that now? Is it something that's important to you or was it just another job? With Pink Floyd, because of our relationship with Cambridge, where we all grew up, and because of our relationship as teenagers, all being together, I can't say that um, it was not important for us to work together with them in terms of a synergy, you know, one hand washing the other. Yeah. 
And so there was always a relationship, always a discussion about any album cover or any work we did for them, and still is, I have to say. So when Dark Side of the Moon came along, we went to Abbey Road Studios, uh, sat with the guys, listened to the music, uh, saw the lyrics and stuff like that. And I remember uh, they didn't have any sort of thoughts about about the album particularly at all. I mean, it was about, you know, madness and, and uh, you know, disconnection and the, the usual Pink Floyd fare, I suppose. And the... The keyboard player, Richard Wright, said, oh, you know, do we have to have another one of your surrealist photograph ideas, you know, like the, <laughs> like the cow, you know, Phantom Heart Mother, you know. <laughs> Couldn't we have something that's more, you know, approachable, like a, a, a logo, a sort of uh, something that's singular, that's graphic, you know. And, and he said, like, actually, like a chocolate box. Well, Storm and I left the studio extremely depressed because it wasn't our style. <laughs> but about a week later... I was thumbing through a magazine, actually, which was about physics and about um, light and light sources and prisms. And Storm saw me looking at it and went, I've got it, I've got it. And he made the shape of a triangle with his fingers and thumb. And he said, this is it. This is what we need to do, a prism. So literally, we hastily drew it on, on a piece of paper and went up to the studios and said, what do you think of this? And I've got a wonderful piece of film of all the Pink Floyd going, that's it. That's definitely the one. That's it. We've got to have that. That's the one. And it was, you know, just synergy, as I say. Mm-hmm. It was one of those moments where, or serendipity, shall I say, where right place, right time, right inspiration and it just summed up Pink Floyd at that time because Pink Floyd were doing concerts whereby they were developing their light shows and had these, this large circular screen behind them. And it was much more about the visual entertainment as much as the music. And they were very hidden. They, they played in darkness themselves. They mm. often, you know, David Gilmore often turned his back to the audience mm. when he played. And so nobody knew who they were. They were very enigmatic. They were very mysterious. So this, uh, you know, prism shape sort of somehow summed them up. You know, a lot of light shows, a lot of entertainment in that area. But actually, the blackness represented, you know, who are they? What are they? Where are they? You know, and so somehow it just all fitted in, you know. Of course, we had no idea it would be such a huge album. Um, and, I asked, and I asked myself, seriously, if it hadn't sold 65 million copies, uh, and as you said, rightly identified, you know, it's been, you know, it's on every T-shirt and every street corner um, and has been for the last uh, 50-odd years. If, if, it, if it hadn't sold that number of albums, would it have been such an iconic symbol? I don't know. You know, that's that's, you know, one has to ask yourself, you know, but nevertheless, obviously, I'm extremely proud of it. And um, the fact that it is so prevalent now in, in media everywhere and instantly recognizable. I think if you walk down the street and you said to somebody, can you hum something from Dark Side of the Moon? They'd probably say no, but they'd know what the image was, which yeah, exactly. is kind of weird. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the answer is yes, I'm extremely proud of it. And how do I feel about it now? Well, there's several things. I'll tell you a couple of stories. First of all, I went to Beijing last year to talk to a, a very famous Chinese rock guitarist about doing something for him. And he gave me a cassette that comes from the time of the Cultural Revolution. 
and it was dark side of the moon. And at that time in China, nobody could listen to any Western music at all. And he was just a kid. And they used to trawl through the garbage sites of where um, the stuff would be dumped from America in China. And they would find cassettes. And this cassette was the first time he ever heard or saw anything to do with Western music. And that influenced him. And the cover meant more to him than anything else. And he gave me that original cassette. Oh, that's great. great. Yeah, it was. It was fantastic. And I keep that dearly. The other thing is that I, I, I I've seen so many things I, I sort of I've got a photograph also of the Syrian freedom fighters um, and their flag is a picture of dark side of the moon where the white line goes down from the prism it's actually uh, a, a picture of a, a white a map of Syria uh, you know again very very powerful and to me very emotive and so you know having having seen all these sort of uh, references that are used in current times, you know, I think it's, I'm very extremely proud about it, you know, and it's used in the right way, which is even more gratifying, you know. I guess that doesn't really occur to me very often, like, because you start to think about, well, rock and roll or something like that is a very European or American kind of entity, and you don't think about it having a global presence like that, that you would just, out of China, you'd have, have something like that, or Syria or something, or, or, Africa. Well, precisely so. That's my point. Yeah, yeah that's my point. You know, I, I mean, another time I, I was with David Gilmore um, in Croatia a few years ago, and there was a couple standing there with both had the identical T-shirts on with the Bulgarian colors in, in, you know, the dark side of the graphic, but in Bulgarian colors. And I asked them, why are you wearing that? They said, well, we're protesting against joining the uh, European Union. <laughs> I mean, it's off the wall, isn't it? But yeah. nevertheless, you know, there it is being, you know, culturally accepted. And I suppose the only thing that I find a little weird about it all these days is that, you know, we've, we've joined the uh, establishment, I suppose, as we call it in England. <laughs> you know. And that's, that was not the intention when we were, you know, radical protesting youths against uh, society you know that was not the idea but you know hey <laughs> things move on you were uh, you mentioned storm uh, your partner and i know yes he's notorious he was notoriously hard-headed i guess is probably the way to put it was was your yeah. relationship <laughs> was your relationship did it benefit from that kind of conflict or did it suffer from that um no it benefited funnily enough i mean storm and i you know, I was devastated when he died in 2013. Mm. But, um, you know, our relationship in hypnosis was extremely close and we were like brothers. And we were like brothers when he died. You know, we, we, we were very, very close. And we had, I don't know how to explain it, but it's a bit like um, Mick and Keith or Robert Plant and Jimmy Page or Roger Waters and David Gill, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Bill Gallagher and Liam Gallagher, you know, you, you get a, a, a sort of something that works between you and you both can give something towards the creative processes. And it, it really worked with Storm and me. You know, he often had ideas but had no idea how to 
present them or how to make it a reality, whereas I was an extremely good photographer in that relationship and could take things and give it a style and a context. And, you, you know, one, as I say, one has washed the other in a way, and we, we, we were very, very close indeed. However, often I would go far afield to do these pictures, you know, whether it was Hawaii or Morocco or, I don't know, all Africa or wherever it was, and I'd come back, and, of course, I would have... A, a very strong uh, opinion about what I thought was the right thing to use, where with him, it was always about the idea. The idea was the most important thing. He didn't care if it was shot in the backyard, you know. Mm -hmm. So we'd have huge arguments. And sometimes they were very volatile and, you know, I'd throw a camera at him or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, it really happened, you know. Uh, uh, but you know what? Within... 24 hours, apologies were made to each other, and it was completely forgotten about, and we just got on because we were so busy and so excited about the work we did in hypnosis, there was no time to, to, for, for, for resentment to build. Um, and, and that's how hypnosis works. So I would say that we got better art out of having a volatile relationship than not because it was sincerely discussed and argued for. Mm. And um, and it was good, and we both admitted to that, you know, especially in the latter days of his life. It's like a successful marriage. I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna be married yeah. for a ton of years unless you argue, and uh, and no, then fi not. find a way uh, to reconcile. Uh, uh, exactly, exactly. So no, it was fantastic. Of course, uh, sadly, when we moved into into the world of films and we started the film company, when we stop doing album covers, then it did become volatile and Storm and I split up and didn't speak for 10 or 12 years. But, um, you know, prior to that, it was all wonderful. But we made up for it later in life and, you know, life's too short. You've got to get on, you know, and uh, there's too many things to do. Right. You Well, you mentioned that you guys were busy all the time and, and you know, going through your uh, catalog, I have uh, the book, the vinyl album cover art book. Yeah. You guys were prolific to say the least yes you probably have a few favorites a few favorite designs that that stick out do you you want to want to mention a few of those yeah i mean interestingly enough probably dark side of the moon is not my favorite design um although that's probably the most iconic uh image for hypnosis um th there were other things that we did early on for example um there was a couple we did for a band called the nice called Elegy, which was um, about 60 red footballs in the Saharan de in Sahara Desert in southern Morocco. And that was the first time that Storm and I went and did what I would call a piece of land art. It was sculptural, very abstract, and somehow did represent the music, I think, which was uh, very mysterious and austere and, and strange. And I think... It was very successful. And what happened with that image was that we realized early on that we could do pictures that we wanted to do and not kowtow to record companies, bands or management as to what they wanted to do. So that always, I loved it. Mm -hmm. um, another one that I love is 10CC. Um, I went to Hawaii to photograph a sheep on a psychiatrist's couch. And you may say, why did you go all the way to Hawaii to do that? And the reason was it was, it was November or January in England, actually. And um, I said to the band, I said to the band, you know, I need big blue 
waves with wonderful white crests. I said, there's only one place to do it, and that's Sunset Beach in Hawaii in, in uh, North uh, Oahu. And he said, they said, okay, fine. In those days, <laughs> you have to put it in context. You know, albums sold in tens of millions, you know, and the business was awash with money. So a lot of the clients we worked for who were incredibly wealthy um, and were enthusiastic and had creative control, much more than you would now. Uh, if I said, you know, I want to do this, you know, in Hawaii or I don't know, in the south of France or go wherever it was, they did so. Yeah, okay, that's important to the picture. It's important to us that it's right. So go. Anyway, I persuaded 10CC to send me to Hawaii, but I got to Hawaii. First of all, there were no sheep there. And secondly, <laughs> they obviously never had psychiatry there because there were no psychiatric couches either. So I had to have one built. And I found a sheep on the university farm, one sheep. Anyway, so I took it to Sunset Beach, and it was an absolute fiasco trying to photograph the sheep. <laughs> These huge, great rolling teeth. And I had to have it injected by a vet with uh, some sort of tranquilizer. But actually, we got the picture in the end, and it's one of the most my most favorite pictures. I think it really psychologically is quite deep. You know, um, she represents the in the workings of the mind a lot and sheep represent, you know, people in a sense. And, uh, and of course, psychiatry is represented by the cows. So there's more to it. Uh, it's much deeper than just a picture of a sheep on a couch uh, on a beach, you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, again, as a, as an image, it's one of my most favorite pictures. And then, oh, of course, there's so many of them. And Led Zeppelin presence. House of the Holy. I mean, both those album covers, um, you know, were, well, House of the Holy was fraught with difficulty. I went to shoot that in uh, the Giants Causeway in Northern Ireland in the middle of the Troubles when there'd been 400 people murdered in Ireland at that time in the war between the uh, Republicans and the, and the Protestants. Mm -hmm. And um, it was difficult, you know, and it poured with rain for a week, you know, so I struggled with that. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think I produced something which was, was, you know, culturally important and something which represented Led Zeppelin at the time. And uh, I'm very proud of that picture. Also in Presence, which is the black object. Mm -hmm. um, again, that was an interesting thing because I had the black object made out of cardboard and black velvet and it was straight. It wasn't twisted. And I went to see the band and I was in my hotel suite and they came in. I remember Jimmy came in, actually. They came in individually. Jimmy came in and looked at it. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's a black object. And he didn't ask any questions. He just said, that's it. That's the one. He understood immediately that it was a sculptural piece, you know, and that it meant it was about Led Zeppelin. It was about the power of Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. And Robert Plant said exactly the same, coming in separately. And, you know, that was it. And again, it, it, I'm extremely proud of these pieces because they... You know, they're cerebral. They're, they're, they're thinking pieces. They're not, you know, somebody looks at it, you've got to work out what it's about. Don't ask me what it's about. I don't really know. But all I know <laughs> is I have an interpretation of it. But uh, for other people, it might not be the same. But I think if you can achieve that, where people have to think about the image, they have to look at it and, and it, it stirs them or moves them in some way, rather than just a boring old picture of the band, you succeeded. I tend to agree with that. Do you have any 
Do you have any least favorites as well? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the 400-odd album covers that, that Storm and I did in the 70s, uh, there are a substantial few that, that failed. But I think that's the same in any creative process. I don't care if it's Picasso or if it's, uh, you know, a band. Sure. You know, we, 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 you know, how many times did you get that album? And there's 12 tracks on an album, and you know, three of them are brilliant, and the other, you know, two of them are turkeys. You know, you <laughs> think, well, I'm not too sure about that. Well, the same thing happened with us. You know, we attempted always to do uh, great things, but sometimes ideas failed for who knows for what reason. Sometimes they just didn't work out. And funnily enough, it, recently I have a an archive of Hypnosis's work. And there's a lot of pictures that have never been published or shown anywhere. And I'm currently doing a book which is going to show those images. And mm. going through some of the things that were rejected by us, by Storm and me saying, no, that's not good enough. To and were never shown or were never presented. Oh my gosh, there's a mine of beautiful imagery there I'll bet. that was was shot that that you know i i look back in retrospect i think why didn't we show that oh of course because we did this you know and that was that was fantastic or whatever <laughs> but yeah the, 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 there are pieces which i really do not think worked well and sometimes i'm embarrassed by them you know <laughs> you can't be good at everything you can't exactly you know? so uh, for me the the pleasure of like listening to a record when i was like in my teens like on vinyl incorporated like the entire package so you know i wanted to sit with the record i wanted to sit with the inner sleeve i wanted to look for clues on the packaging and things related to the record sometimes there was stuff there sometimes there wasn't but it didn't matter because it was like a completely immersive experience and there's a reason why the walls of my podcast studio are are covered with with your art because they meant something to me and I, do you feel like the music over the past 40 years has suffered as a result of that kind of lack of connection to packaging and detail and, and the music itself? Because, I mean, I'm not moved. Like, I don't need that anymore. If, if I want to find out about a band right now, I can find out pretty much everything mm -hmm. I want to know just by going to the Internet. And there used to be mystery yeah. and kind of... You know, I don't know anything about them, and maybe this will give me some sort of insight into what they're like. And sometimes it did, and sometimes it didn't. It made it more difficult to understand them. But, but there was that was the only connection that we had. Do you, do you feel like music has suffered as a result of that? What I think about album covers, they were a signpost. They were kind of um, an initiation in some respect that if you didn't know who the band were or you didn't have access to the band very much, which people in the 70s didn't, there were very few magazines and very few uh, TV shows, and certainly there was no Spotify, no YouTube, nothing like that that we have today. As you say, you can access things instantly now. Mm -hmm. I think there were, as I say, a signpost. It was like an indication of where the band was at. They bought out an album every couple of years. The album cover was really a very personal statement by a band to discover something about them if you were a fan, whether it was the lyrics that were inside, whether it was the, the photographs, whether it was the design of the package, whether it was the poster that was given away, whether it was the stickers that were included, whatever it was. And also just the act of putting vinyl, taking vinyl out of the sleeve, you yeah. know, which was, you had to be done carefully, putting it on the record player. It was a communion. 
Mm. You know, it was a communion. It was a religious kind of experience each time that you had to be careful of. And and nowadays, you just look on Spotify and press a button, and you've you've got it. So the whole uh, you know record cover and packaging. Uh, doesn't exist anymore. And what I think is a shame about that is that somehow that sense, tactile sense of being a part of it and touching it is gone. Um, But on the other hand, you know, technology moves on. And it's the same if you ask me about what do I think about digital technology in terms of design work, Mm -hmm. photographic work, Boy, I welcome it. I mean, I'm still designing. I'm in the middle of designing two album covers for Pink Floyd right now. I'm, I welcome it because, you know, it's so much easier than it was. And whereas a cover to take me six weeks in the 70s, you know, I can do that in six days now just be, because of the tools I have available. So technology moves on. It will never be the same as it was. Those 15 halcyon years between 1967 and 1982 when album covers were absolutely at their most powerful uh, and and were sort of religiously poured over, um, you know that's never going to happen again. And and I feel that how privileged was I to be a, been a part of that? Um, do I miss it? Not really. Um, you know, like everybody else, pressing a button and instantly I can hear something is is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Do I think it will ever go back in some way? Yes, I do. I think music and visuals are intrinsically entwined. And I don't care if you're talking about music halls that happened in the the, uh, 19th century or if you're talking about, um, you know, what's happening now. Unfortunately, there's just thumbnail images when you get most music now. Mm -hmm. And what will develop from that is people's desire to see pictures. I mean, you know, if you look at museums, for example, museums are really becoming popular again like never before. They're opening up all over the world. I mean, just look in America. The amount of museums that have, you know, opened up with famous architects, uh, you know, it's extraordinary people's uh, desire to learn about culture and look at pictures and, and understand pictures. Well, that's taken a back seat with music for a while, but I think it'll come back. And I think those elements of it will become more important again. However, you've got to put the financial aspect into that. I was privileged where there was a lot of money around. Nowadays, uh, most young bands, if they can get a budget of $3,000 for an album cover, they're lucky. My budgets were $50,000 in the 70s. You've got to... And that will come back at some point when the business, the music business has worked out how to capitalize yet again on money making so they can encourage young bands, they can put money into it, put money into the artwork, put money into the films. It will happen. But right now, it's not. So I'm, I'm positive at some point or other, visuals and art and music will all well, we'll go full circle. It always does. Somehow the swing of the pendulum will come back. But in what way? I have no idea. Mm. Maybe we'll all be listening to music and in a virtual reality world, you know. Right. Uh, you know, which is, is which is quite possible. You know, it hasn't really taken off that particularly at the moment, but I'm sure it will. So, yeah, I'm positive it will come back in some other form. You guys were at the pinnacle of the industry in 82, 83 when you guys... Yes got out was that a yes writing on the wall situation 
Where did you just see yes. that it was starting to collapse? And well, actually, it wasn't me. I tell you what, it was is that Storm and I, uh, when we were younger, Storm was at the Royal College of Art doing studying film, and I was a huge film buff, and we'd always had the idea that we'd move into filmmaking. So in the late seventies, not only had punk come along whereby, uh, you know, an album cover cost uh, three cents, you know, a bit of old newspaper stuck onto a bit of color, you know. <laughs> well, never mind the bollocks, there's the Sex Pistols, uh -huh. Jamie Reed's brilliant cover, perfect example. Um, so I could see the financial aspects of people spending lots of money on prog rock band album covers fading out. That was one thing. The second thing is that MTV started. So immediately, hey, why don't we move into filmmaking? You know, let's let's take our talents in hypnosis and move that into doing music videos. And the third and most important thing was the advent of the CD. Because when CD came along and this little tiny four and a half inch by four and a half inch plastic disc turned up, boy, I was not interested to see my pictures like that because the <laughs> canvas of a gatefold sleeve, which was 24 inches by 12 inches, was like a big painting. And so all the writing was on the wall in many different respects and actually was not really my decision. I was sitting at home one day in about 1980 and Storm turned up with a bunch of flowers and he never brought flowers to my door. I thought, <laughs> what the hell is all this about? And he said, I want to stop the company. I want to stop while we're ahead of the game. And I protested and argued and, you know, and then he said to me, look, you know, we need to think ahead. We should be making music videos. That's what we should do. We should take the same art, and move it into music videos and moving pictures. That's what we've always wanted to do. And I agree with him. So um, by 1984, uh, we had definitely moved. We'd started a film company called Greenback Films, and we were making hundreds of music videos and documentaries and feature films and everything. And then <laughs> about 1987, it all blew up, and Storm and I fell out. And what did we fall out about? Money. Um, uh, you know, money and power. I wanted to direct, he wanted to direct, he wanted me to produce and write, you know, and it all kind of fell yeah. apart. And, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, for a while it was good. So those are the main reasons why we, we, we stopped hypnosis. It was, it was a deliberate, a very deliberate plan. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't just sort of by chance. It was well thought through. And since then you've been, like you said, involved in film and I know you worked with Paul mm. McCartney and did tours with him. And I, yes. the last yeah. the uh, the last album project that I know that you've released, at least I think, was uh, Pink Floyd's Endless River, I think. No, uh, <clears throat> no, the last thing that I did with Pink Floyd was The Later Years, oh, which is the right. box set. Yeah, it's a big box set, and it's all about... Uh, Pink Floyd from 1987 after Roger Waters left the band, mm. which was David Gilmore and Nick Mason when they made Division Bell, Pulse, and released all the other films and stuff like that with it. And we did a very big box set that was released a few months ago. And that was an album cover that I worked on with um, other people. I don't actually take photographs myself anymore. I 
I guess I've reached a period in my life because I like directing film and stuff, and I like being a creative director. So I'm creative director for Pink Floyd, and that allows me to employ other people. I can get the photographer I want to work with. I can get the graphics guy I want to work with. And I oversee it as a kind of overseer, overlord. I can work out what I want and get other people to do it for me. Then I put it all together. And I, I prefer that way of working now. Again, things change, things move on. They're still my ideas, still, you know, but I'm just employing other people to, with their tools to give me what I need. Okay. I mean, if you put me with a computer, yeah, I can send an email. I can even save an email. But don't ask me to create graphics with it because I simply can't. But I know a man who can, and I'd rather <laughs> use his skills. And he's probably about 40 years younger than me and very good. So that's how things have changed. But, um, yeah, I'm working on a couple of projects for Pink Floyd right now. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, I'm writing a new book. I've got a, well, I did have a large retrospective exhibition due to take place in Holland at the end of next year. But whether that's going to be postponed now, I'm not sure. Mm. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, the archive has been prepared for that. Um, and also, uh, there's a, a feature film, docu feature documentary being made about hypnosis, which again was supposed to start filming in September and has been put on hold mm. because of the coronavirus. Um, you know, so, you know, but hey, I'm sure these things will happen eventually. So that's good. <laughs> so, the, so busy, busy, busy. Yes. Yeah. The exhibition <laughs> you were talking about that's uh, Their Mortal yes. Remains, correct? Is that? That's a Pink Floyd exhibition. No, that that's that that was another. That no, this exhibition is called Through the Prism, and it's about hypnosis, and it's huge, okay. and it's a retrospective that, that's due to open in Holland first. But their mortal remains was the exhibition I designed for Pink Floyd that opened uh, the Victorian Albert Museum in London, and it was the most successful and biggest exhibition they've ever had. We had four hundred and fifteen thousand visitors wow. over a period of six months. And I'm very proud of it. It, it uh, you know, being Pink Floyd, we pulled all the stops out, spent all the right money on it, and it was, I felt, was impressive. And it was such a joy for me to see hypnosis artwork presented in such a big way and wonderful way. Um, it was really something, and I was, I was very proud of that. It was one of the. I suppose, milestones in my career having that. And I was so sad that Storm died before I was able to put it on. Um, but, you know, that's that's what happens. Yeah. But anyway, no, so it, it was great. It was fantastic. It was wonderful. So if people wanted to keep tabs on uh, on your career and see where these things are going to pop up, would they go to aubreypowell.com? Is that your website? Probably not, because my website is so out of date, and I'm very <laughs> bad at keeping it up. You know, I, I always had this thing with hypnosis. You know, we, we never stop working, and um, and I never have stopped working. I mean, since I, all my life, I've worked nonstop. I've never sort of had a break where I thought, oh, my gosh, where's the next crust coming from ever? I've been privileged and fortunate about that. But at the same time, there are things where I'm just so keen to get a move on and do stuff i'm very much a doer i have to get on and do stuff um but i just things to, you know people say you've got to update your website you've got to do this you know i go oh okay well i'll get around to that yes okay do it you know and i 
I hand it over to somebody, but then it doesn't quite, you know. So, yeah, you can go to AubreyPowell.com, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I would also say it's not exactly up to date. But, you know, people leave me messages a lot, you know, on my website, on my uh, email, so which I don't mind at all. So I try and respond to as many people as possible. For some reason or other, there are a lot of hypnosis fans out there, so I, we get a lot of fan mail. Yep. And there's a lot of articles being written about hypnosis all the time. You know, I just had one, one from China. There's just been one from Japan, one from Italy, Spain. You know, it's ongoing. And if you'd asked me in the 1970s, would I ever have thought that hypnosis would be probably more well-known now in 2020 than it was then, I would have laughed. But I don't laugh anymore. I'm extremely... <laughs> yeah, it's hard extremely to explain... Dangerous. It's hard to explain to other people what that that kind of passion looks like as a fan. Like, the, what's the reason that I have a Hawkwind album cover yeah. on my wall? There's no way, there's no way in, in hell that I'm listening to a Hawkwind record these days. And if if yeah. I was, I could just find it on Spotify. I don't need to pull the vinyl out. But there's something tactile about that response and about the art and how it affected me. That yeah, I want these things around me and that. That's that was the most important thing because it says something about my personality and my tastes and, and yes. my likes, and it kind of helped define part of who I was becoming back then when these things were popular. And and to me, it's just very important. That's right. I, I, it's interesting because I mean, hypnosis has a kind of fan base, um, and one of the fans that we have, I mean, he flies all over the world copying hypnosis imagery. For example. The Pink Floyd, I wish you were here, the image of the diver mm -hmm. in the water, which was um, shot at Mono Lake in California. I mean, he went there, you know, and sent me a photograph of him upside down in the water, you know, or he, he I, I, you know, I find him, you know, he's, he's at my old studio in Denmark Street in London, Soho, and he's out the back there in the same position as Peter Gabriel in the scratch picture, you know, I mean, and then... There's a wonderful group of uh, vinyl fans who are called the Vinylettes. Have you heard of these people? I have not. It's a bunch of women, women in America who are called the Vinylettes, and they have huge record collections, and they take rather provocative photographs of themselves with their favorite album cover. And it's great when you see this wonderful-looking girl with an amazing record collection. She's holding a picture of Adam Hart Mother, the cow, you know. It, <laughs> there's a huge fan base out there. And uh, and boy, am I pleased about that, you know. That's fantastic. It's very good. Well, Great. it very is a. Uh, it's been my. Uh, it's been our pleasure to have you on, uh, Aubrey. I've... Yeah, it's it's been wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to us today. My pleasure. It's been uh, it's been enjoyable. I'm, it's a lot of fun, and I'm glad that you uh, still appreciate the uh, the genre. It's terrific. Absolutely, and we will keep our eyes out for uh, the hypnosis documentary and for all the things that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. and uh, if I see it pop up, since you're not going to update your website, if I see it pop up, I'll put it on our stuff. Get the word out <laughs> <Okay>. that way. <laughs> okay, I am going to update my website, but it's probably about five years out of date. I've just been grossly irresponsible and not <laughs> taking notice. Of it. It's just uh, I don't know. When you're busy, you're busy. You know what I mean? Yep. It's just that's how it is. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. My pleasure. And, really enjoyable. And you Thank have a you. great weekend. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. So thank you again, Aubrey Powell. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, we love it when people come on here and talk to us. Uh, I love doing these kind of episodes, too. These 
I think of them as music adjacent episodes. I don't know about you, but uh, that's I think pretty accurate. Yeah. I think it's cool to talk to somebody who had such a huge amount of influence without actually making any music. Mm. I mean, I guess I should say a huge amount of influence on the music industry without actually making any music. I think that that's great. Yes, it's a secondary part of music, but no less important. Yes. So it's not the music, but it had uh, a lot of input and influence on what was being said. Yeah. And the other thing, I'm super happy he kind of went there uh, in one of his stories. I was going to talk about how, you know, today you can just Photoshop all of this together. And back when they were doing all the hypnosis stuff, they had to go shoot film. They had to go out into- In a place. Yeah. I mean, he mentioned they went to Hawaii. Uh the Moroccan desert, I believe, yeah. uh, all over the world. And like, you know, well, we had to take 50, you know, red uh, footballs into the Moroccan desert, set them up and then take some f- photos, you know, and it's not even, you know, that already huge amount of logistics. Even on top of that, once you get there, you have to be like, oh, and by the way, you have to wait for just the right time of day. And so if it took you an hour extra long to set this up, you know, guess what? You got to wait 24 hours before you can shoot it again. And if it's cloudy today, if it's you cloudy, wait till tomorrow, like the houses of the Holy cover, yeah. I know that he talked about how it was constantly raining and they were just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then all of a sudden they were able to go out and Absolutely. take the shot. That to me, it blows my mind that any of this got done. It really <laughs> does. It's just amazing to me that it's like, wow, people actually did this. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, it's it's great it's yeah we hope you enjoyed it yes. i know we certainly did uh if you want to get a hold of kyle or i uh info at audiojudo.com mm-hmm. please send uh, some feedback on that and if you have any hypnosis albums of your own let us know what you have yeah in fact, to uh, trade or something yeah send us a send us a photo if you've got any of hypnosis's albums uh of you listening to it please close on uh <laughs> yeah please not so provocative <laughs> um yeah but yeah uh also you can get in touch with us uh facebook.com forward slash audio judo twitter is uh at audio judo instagram is at audio judo and uh i think that's it yeah oh then store we should probably plug the store really quick oh yes uh, go ahead yes uh we are now selling some merch i believe there's a sticker some t-shirts uh, what else is on there, Matthew? Uh, mugs, mugs, magnets. Oh, yeah. Uh, cell phone uh, covers, uh, coronavirus uh, masks, <laughs> uh, whatever you need. Uh, if you want to put a big audio judo logo right on your mug, not your coffee mug, but your face. Your face mug. Yeah. And uh, support your uh, your independent podcast. Yeah, But it's uh, it's right there. If you go to audiojudo.com, right there on the top, it says shop. Click right on there and it will take you there. And uh, all those proceeds go directly to our beer budget. So Ooh, yeah. we appreciate it. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Thanks, everybody. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.